Health is a state of body and mind. Wellness is a state of being. We want you to have both. This is Channels of Health, the podcast giving you ideas and insights into new and time-tested avenues to health. From mental wellness and innovations in mental health to our daily lives and overall health journeys. Join your hosts, Patty and Damien, both founders of organizations dedicated to healing as they bring candid conversations and new information to you. Let's start the show. Here are your hosts, Patty and Damien. We are here today with Betty Murray, and Betty, I would like to start by asking you to tell us about your journey towards health. What caused you to get into this area of business? That's a rather long subject, but, um, you know, health and fitness was always something I was interested in, even as a young child. Um, I was one of the weird kids who's, you know, brought lunch to school and, you know, I never ate school lunches. My mom would not allow us to have that junk food. I, you know, only got, yeah, I only got, I only got sodas if I didn't get in trouble during the week, which means I didn't get soda very often. Um, But, but, you know, in, in my early college career, medical school, honestly, I was a kid of the eighties and it sounded like it was too much schooling. And I, and I really, really didn't um, fit that paradigm. So the other side of it as a kid, I was raised Christian scientist. But I was absolutely interested in medicine. So Christian scientists, for those that don't know it, you use prayer. So I didn't see a doctor from pretty much right after probably my first checkup until I was 18 years old. However, my dad had his first heart attack while we were camping in the middle of nowhere in New Jersey when I was six. So my dad had his heart attack. We end up in this hospital and I'm looking around trying to reconcile a medical environment that I didn't participate in, but my dad needed, right? So my, my dad lived another 34 years after that. Um, and had multiple heart attacks and other things over his lifetime. But I was fascinated. But so I had this really weird experience of we didn't participate in that system, but I got to see it. So, you know, as I grew into my adult life, um, didn't really participate in medicine, but I started having digestive problems. And like anybody else, you kind of let that go until it becomes too pronounced. Um, at the same time, I was, I was running out of energy. I was fatigued, but I'm in my middle 20s. So I'm thinking, what could possibly be wrong with me? I ended up getting diagnosed with colitis. And so in that process, I jumped back to what I thought would be a, a normal question. Could I change something about my diet to affect my autoimmune digestive disorder? And the doctor quite literally laughed at me and said, your digestive disorder has nothing to do with what you're eating. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was sort of involuntary. No, I mean, and yeah, I was a little more colorful with my response back to him at the time <laughs> because I, I looked at it and I said, a five-year-old could tell you that yeah, what something goes in is going to affect what comes what, out. Exactly, that there's got to be something with my food. So that really led me on this journey of I need to go out and find out what I could do to help myself because the drugs they use in colitis and other autoimmune conditions are immunosuppressive. They leave you at a higher risk for things like lymphoma and other cancers, and they completely suppress your immune system. So the impact of taking those drugs for a lifetime are huge. So I started taking nutrition classes, and that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is where I'm supposed to be. So you know, led me to, you know, 17 years of school and the same amount of time and money that I would have spent <laughs> if I had gone to med school. So, oh, the best laid plans. 
<laughs> you know, so all of those ideas I had in the 80s were not really smart. But um, I've since gone through, you know, multiple masters, PhD program. Um, I'm certified by the Institute of Functional Medicine as a, a certified functional medicine practitioner. And so I'm a clinical nutritionist, you know, all because I got sick. How many people end up getting in the health business because of their own personal story? Psychologist. Psychologist? <laughs> <laughs> and I think they still need work. Some yes, of them do. yes, for sure. I had a really brilliant person tell me one time, you do what you yourself need to work on. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, so fast forward to mm-hmm. your business, yeah. Living Well, and tell me about your company and your business what you all do, what kind of subjects you address. Sure, sure. So Living Well Dallas, we um, opened as one of the first integrative functional medicine-based clinics back in 2006. Um, And underneath one roof, we've grown now, so where we are today, is we bring the best of medicine together with other mind, body, spirit, and other um, techniques to help our patients get well. So under our roof today, we have internal medicine, rheumatology, psychiatry, clinical nutrition. We have licensed professional counselors, health coaches, body workers, and then a multitude of other diagnostics and other tools to help people get well. Would it be easier for you to say what you don't do? Totally. (laughs) That's amazing. So, yeah. Like everything you listed are things that I need to come see you for. That's that's the only reason I'm here. I'm looking for actual medical I, advice. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're taking each other yeah. on our own journey. Yeah. We're that's basically incredible. bringing people on as guests who we need to be yeah. talking to and seeing yeah. ourselves. Well, and it started with us talking about why can't all these things be in one place? Why not only are they not in one place, but they don't even talk to each other. So around and around the circles, I know that's an old concept that you are well aware of, but I just love, as you're listing that stuff, I'm thinking, my God, what? Check, check, check. I need that, I need that. So it would seem at some point there would be a tipping point where other medical professionals would see this as a better way to run a business, even if it's just financially inspired. I'm just amazed that it doesn't happen more. I know we are going to have so much fun. This is awesome. This is, this is crazy. Okay. Now, there's a lot of words that new consumers to mm-hmm. this kind of business are hearing. We've got functional medicine. We've got integrative medicine. We've got precision medicine. Walk us through those subjects. And if you can, kind of, don't, I don't need to say dumb it down, but not at a super high clinical level. Certainly, certainly. So conventional medicine, what we would call Western medicine, was really born out of two things. It was born out of world, uh, out of world wars and communicable disease, right? So the vast majority of what we call westernized medicine really started with the Civil War and battle warfare and trying to save people under warfare, truly. And, you know, and then the secondary... Um, real experience was to compartmentalize medicine for those reasons and then to overcome things like diphtheria and cholera and other things that killed lots of people at the turn of the century, 1900s. Um, So conventional medicine is really surgical interventions and critical care interventions, right? So what that did to Western medicine is we compartmentalized medicine into different body part specific specialties. So you have your gastroenterologist that looks at your gut. You have your cardiologist that looks at your heart. You have your nephrologist that looks at your kidneys. And you have, you know, gynecologists that look at your ovaries if you happen to have them. So the problem is, is when you segregate the body into these different silos, 
then you're forgetting that none of those things can operate independent of each other and that the body is really a system in which these organs and tissues operate, but they, they aren't separate from each other. Um, that came about because we were doing surgical interventions and you go in, you go, oh gosh, I need to you know, put a stent in an artery to keep it open. That makes sense in a surgical intervention, but not when we're talking about managing chronic disease, which is what we all die from in the Western world, that are really systems-based problems. So Western conventional medicine, one of the biggest deficits in it is everybody's a specialist. You have internal medicine that is supposed to be the quarterback, but what they have been relegated to with our current medical system is they are just the conduit and the doorkeeper for the specialists. So they're just there to refer out. They're not giving the latitude, the time, and the capacity to be able to play quarterback for people. Right? So if you have a chronic disease or a health problem, you end up trying to figure out what do you need to pull together from your different specialists to figure out what's going on. So, which brings me to some of these other techniques, right? So conventional medicine is absolutely necessary. I'm not anti-conventional medicine. I'm just saying that it's not very well suited and the financial and business model is not set up in a way that can really help people overcome chronic disease and prevent it. So integrative. Integrative medicine is bringing together different methods and modalities under one, usually roof, but it could be together in a treatment process to help somebody. So integrative may be different specialists working together. So like having a rheumatologist, an internal medicine doctor, and a psychiatrist together can be an integrative practice. In most cases, integrative also is saying that they're bringing together other modalities that may be outside of conventional medicine. So it might be things like mind-body-spirit stuff, so meditation, massage, acupuncture. So you might have a blending of sort of the Eastern modalities, which are going to be things like acupuncture, meditation, um, everything to Qigong, to Ayurvedic medicine. So it's some of the more um, lifestyle-based pieces. So in many cases, it's, it's integrating those together in a care plan for a patient. Um, so integrative means multiple types of things coming together. Functional medicine is really truly medicine, so we have to clarify that. It's, it's, it is uh, about 35 years ago, um, several individuals that were all physicians in different um, specialties and some researchers and PhDs came together and said, look, we're missing the boat. These chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease and cancer all have these similar underlying mechanisms. And the way we silo medicine in Western society, we're not answering that problem. So at the very core of it, functional medicines is taking systems biology. So instead of looking at the body as these individual little pieces, we look at it at a broader scale. So we sort of blow out to 30,000 foot and start looking at what's going on and trying to get to the root cause and what's common among all these other things that may have common root problems and root causes that we can start unraveling. So I'll give an example. Most people with cardiovascular disease have diabetes or have diabetes brewing and they don't know it because the cardiovascular disease showed up earlier, right? So you have the heart attack before you become a type 2 diabetic. But the mechanism that causes the inflammatory activity, that causes the placking in the arteries and all these other things are being driven by high insulin levels and glucose levels that take 30 years to present as type 2 diabetes. 
So from a functional medicine standpoint, we're looking for all those underlying things that are going on because if we can reduce the inflammation, improve, in this case, in this example, blood sugar regulation and all these other things, we probably stop both in their tracks, if not reverse them. So at the core of it, functional medicine is using medical testing and using a deeper dive to try and get to the underlying root cause. We use medicine when necessary, but we will always use diet, lifestyle, nutritional interventions, supplementation, and we will probably look deeper at labs and other things so we can get to the answer. I will never have to ask you again to make it easy to understand. That was awesome. That was a great metaphor. I'm hearing about it, reading about it almost everywhere now. You know that situation that happens when when you first see something, it seems quite novel, and then all of a sudden it's everywhere, and you think, how come I didn't know about any of this? And so precision medicine, can you talk about that? So precision medicine, precision medicine came about when we did the Human Genome Project. So 20 years ago, we mapped our human genetic map, right? What we found in that is, number one, we thought that there was like a gene for every little item, but we it's really not that. There's a combination of genes that make up our eye color, our hair color, how tall we are, but they also make up our how we make things like proteins in the body and enzymes and how we metabolize things. Um, they also make up kind of the complexity of whether we're going to be at greater risk for certain diseases, right? So when we mapped the Human Genome Project, what it allowed us to start doing is not only look at someone and say, your diet and your lifestyle and your other things about your life lead you to this greater risk, but we can look at your genetics and sort of plan out what your potential risk would be. So just because you have genetic risk for heart disease, let's say, doesn't mean you will have it. But if I know that I have an extraordinary risk because my genetics show it, that I have heart disease, maybe I won't eat a cheeseburger, french fries, and a Coke every day for lunch. Right? So I can make informed decisions about my life. Because the thing is, your genes load the gun. Your lifestyle pulls the trigger. So precision medicine is taking things like your genetic variability and the uniqueness that really makes you and helps you personalize to the N of 1. So Because so, really, truly, part of what's wrong with Western medicine is we say, if you are diagnosed with this label, so anybody that shows up with this constellation of symptoms gets a label, That label means that you have this disease, so therefore this set of protocols are going to be used. That assumes that everybody that has the same presentation of symptoms has the same cause and the same exact presentation, which isn't true. So when we look at precision medicine, what that does is we look at it and we go, each person is unique and individual. We're all bio-individual. So in precision medicine, you're looking at I'm going to get it down to your exact needs based on what's going on with you genetically and what's going on epigenetically, which is what's going on right here, right now. So functional medicine is always going to use precision medicine, right? So we, that's part of sort of the paradigm is everybody's an N of one. Some people have questions about functional medicine. Is that coming from people who don't understand it, who don't, who have something to lose if they lose that argument? Why, why would somebody have an argument against functional medicine? It seems so obvious to me. It, it does. It does. So, you know, it's, um, it's hard for such a substantially large organization like conventional medicine. So we're talking the insurance companies, the, the facilities, the hospitals, the entire paradigm that is built around sort of label it, diagnose it, prescribe, cut, burn. 
right? That's, that's pretty much kind of where, so we have a paradigm and a financial paradigm that is set up for us to be ill. I mean, truly, honestly, hospitals don't make money unless you're there. Isn't that a sad comment? How do we, you know, I know you're incredibly creative. We've got to find a way to motivate the people who are getting all this money from us staying ill. And this is the first time we've had this conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it won't be the last. Have you any ideas or have you read anything or how do we motivate the system? I guess one thing is we just start getting people to advocate for themselves. That'd be a good starting point. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's the answer. M maybe somehow or another we reach out to the individuals, even if we do it en masse, and get them to realize that there's an incentive for you to stay sick. And the first time you heard that, wasn't that a little bit shocking? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I um, used to attend a large organization, I won't name it here, that was business, business, large business, hospitals, insurance companies, med medical device companies, pharmaceuticals, and then they invited the general business community of Dallas. So the IBMs, the other companies would show up. I decided to show up every once in a while, you know, to, to kind of talk about it. And they had a committee one day talking about you know, what's this paradigm and what are we going to do about, you know, stepping in and sort of intervening? And one of the questions I had, it was before the Accountable Care Act went into into service, and I was trying to understand it, and I said, well, I held up my hand, and I said, you know, can you explain the Accountable Care Act to me? Because how I hear it is that the hospitals have incentive to take care of the patient when they show up in an emergency situation, and truly, they get penalized on the Accountable Care Act if you come back within 30 days, because that means you didn't do your job to begin with, right? That there was, there was something that you could have done to intervene. Now, the primary care physician that they then tell you to go see after that also becomes part of that punitive damage, right? So if they don't take care of you and make sure that they follow up and keep you out of the hospital, they get penalized, right? So the intent was now penalization if somebody gets, gets kind of in trouble from an emergency situation. So I was like, answer me this. So I'm a primary care doctor. I'm getting penalized because I can't get the person to come in or whatever it is going on. The hospital may or may not have done everything right or whatever, but they get penalized. I said, where's the carrot for the patient? The one person that probably has the most impact on whether they're getting the medications they need or the follow-up they need and possibly intervening and making sure that they take the steps necessary. You know, and he said, well, we don't really care about that. And he said, and the truth is that the truth is we don't think they'll do that. And I said, well, and he said, and, and I don't think the primary care physicians can do are really are interested in doing that. And I said, well, and he said, well, as an employer, he thought I was an employer, you can incentivize the insurance companies to do something and help them with prevention because you can just ask for it, meaning the employer pay for additional coverage to have preventative services. And I said, A, I'm an employer in a clinic and I happen to be a medical provider and, and help medical providers, what I'm trying to understand is how do we help the medical providers and the patients get in this game where they actually feel like there's some proactive activity? Because the one person that needs help isn't getting it. And he said, the system isn't set up for that. I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh my gosh. And actually the Allegan rep was sitting next to me and he said, thank you for asking that question no one else has. And I was like, oh, I probably need to leave <laughs> so they don't see my car in the parking lot. But so, so here's where it comes down to, 
is we have a medical system that is designed around illness, right? Everybody makes money if somebody stays ill, and I like to call it a franchise player. So if you know things about football, franchise player makes me money all the time. So you're sick, but you don't really die, right? So we add medications, and then we have to add medications because we added medications. People don't get well, right? So the entire system has as a financial thing that's trillions of dollars that would require a complete 180, so I've tried going to different things. I've talked to executives and all other things. What I think is kind of what you said, Patty, is pe- people are starting to advocate for themselves. I think people are really getting disenfranchised by it. They're, they're not getting the care they need. They sort of see the writing on the wall that, that their, their health isn't going to be getting better, and their lifespan and health span are not equal to each other. And so we have people advocating for themselves. And I think the other part is you almost have to create a financial paradigm that is outside of the paradigm that we have today. So I look at the changes in insurance, right? Everybody's insurance comparatively to 20 years ago is we're paying tons more for it and we get nothing for it, right? So as that cost of having insurance goes up and they actually aren't covering anything because our health insurance is like car insurance. It is not there to pay for your oil change and your new tires. It is there if you get hit, right? But we perceive it as something that should cover my tires and my oil, but it doesn't anymore. So as people are doing that, people are starting to spend their discretionary dollars on things that are helping them, like functional and precision medicine and, and doing the active things. If more and more people start doing that, that paradigm will have to shift. And I believe that businesses like Living Well Dallas are addressing that. So I know I've talked with you about this before. How many other companies, how many other CEOs have the mindset like what you all have? How pervasive is Living Well Dallas philosophy in other parts of our country? The functional medicine community is growing. And we we reached a tipping point really in, in 2011 and then even a greater one in 2014. As I'd say the American population started really getting sort of sort of sort of catch fire. The idea of you know really looking at systems biology and hey, diet and lifestyle and changing my stress levels can have a really <laughs> novel effect on my health. Who knew? Um, so there is a lot of physicians moving this direction, and unfortunately, for the longest time, it was because they themselves or somebody in their family got sick. They went to their tool chest and they had nothing, and so they had to go through what I went through and what everybody else went through. They had to get sick and go looking for something else. What I do have um, inspiration from is I've met a lot of young physicians that are going into medical school, and I've met a lot of nurse practitioners and physician assistants that have a different mindset. They're the younger generation, and they've grown up kind of with access to data because they have a phone that's got Google and things that we didn't have when we were younger. So they're more educated. And so there is at least a a group that are going through that experience that have expectations to come in and do a better job of preventative medicine, right, And, and really trying to prevent disease. So there's a lot of people out there trying to do this. The challenge is if they're in the insurance model, the insurance model is based on throughput. So the average primary care physician, family practice, gynecology, and internal medicine on average need to see a patient every 8 to 10 minutes to cover their overhead. So, and that's just, that's just the financial reality of it. They can't pay their bills. And that's why you see those, those specialties are declining rapidly. Nobody wants to go to med school to basically turn and burn and not even get to know their patients. So the financial paradigm is 
is destructive. So the practitioners that try and do this within the financial model of insurance struggle because they have to fight to get paid. They often will have a lot of fight with the insurance companies because insurance companies don't want you to dig. They don't want you to look at why somebody might get sick, right? And because they don't get a financial ROI on that. That is a direct quote, right? Who could we attribute that to? Do we know? Here's, here's, here's I'd like to write her a letter. Yeah, I asked, I asked a, um, a executive with one of the big major insurance companies, and he said, look, here's the thing. The average person is going to maintain relative health, meaning not expensive, until they're about 55. And then by the time they hit 65, they, back in like 2012, I think is the last time I looked at this data, the average expenditure for somebody over 65 goes up to like $50,000 a year in just managing their health. But now they're on the Medicare system, right? So when you're under 65, you're in the commercial payer system, which is driven by insurance companies' relationships with employers. So the employer is going to look at it every year, especially if they're self-insured, and they're going to look at the bottom line. And if some other insurance company comes in and can provide the same service with better costs, that insurance company loses that contract. They get no ROI if they help somebody maintain health because people can jump from one company to the next. And that's pretty much what he told me. He said, we don't, we don't get a major ROI. So for us to do exploratory testing to help somebody get better, it's just more costs that we absorb. And my argument was, well, if we catch somebody now and they don't have a heart attack and you're not dropping a half million dollars or more on, a, on surgery, and he said, they may have it the following year and they're with another company. So the, par the financial paradigm drives a lot of the decision making. For me, and I don't mean this like, oh, capitalism's a problem. I'm not saying that. But when you're trying to heal people in a capitalistic money dynamic, uh, a lot of my friends who've gone overseas and experienced massive turning around of their health in months. I've told you about some of them. They were not in any form of a medical facility, you know, and I'm not, I'm not against that. I just love this idea of why can't we do both? Like Patty, you and I both have been doing the same thing. We go to a regular doctor, as I call them. Mm -hmm. I get the blood panels. I get all that stuff so that I have a baseline for what all the other things I'm pursuing. And I, it just seems so obvious to me. I didn't, and this is a little embarrassing, I didn't know people were doing it at the level that you were doing it. So I have friends going to India to do this, and you're like three miles from their house, which I find really fascinating. You know, it, there's a financial model that's in place that all my friends, when we were growing up, being a doctor was one of the best jobs in the world. That was a dream job. I have three friends that all went, they paid the price, they put in the time, and none of them want to be doctors. It's just destroyed the industry for them. They have to fight so hard to get paid. They get to see their patients for, now you tell me, eight minutes, which is amazing. But my whole point is, is there a way, in your opinion, in an environment such as America where it is about finances? Like You can call it whatever you want, but when it comes down to it, you're covering overhead. And I, I realize you and I don't know each other very well, but the world that I'm in, it's constantly people explaining to me why they can't do certain things because... It's business, right? We can't work with kids because of business. We can't do this because of business. So my question to you is, do you really see a time where America as a whole could move in this? Or do you think there's just going to become this movement where most people just start really, truly taking care of themselves? And we have insurance for the car accident, mm -hmm. right? Um, or whatever might happen. But the rest of it's just going to be on us and out of pocket. Do you? Which way do you see that going? You know, I 
it's funny because I wear two hats, right? I'm a clinician and, and I really love helping people, but I'm also the CEO of this company and I self-funded Living Well, right? So, and I, and I can tell you from a business standpoint, I've tried on and, and at my own peril sometimes financially, like, let's see if we can make this work, right? And tried different ways. And I'd like to believe that there can be a blending of the two. I don't think, like I said, I, it, I, it's so hard to imagine the current medical industry shifting gears, right? There's just too much money in the way it's set up. But I think there's a way to marry out-of-pocket and insurance to make it work in a way that's not punitive for the people trying to provide it, but also provides an incredible level of service to the patient. Because to me, that's the important part. Like, paramount to me is that that patient is getting taken care of and what they need is getting taken care of and they're treated with dignity and respect and all those other things you know and and we have very frank conversations about look insurance will and won't cover this but I'm not even going to worry about what your insurance company says because that's for you to decide it's your body right but I think there's a way to blend it I have ideas on how that would work um, you know, executing them are a little bit challenging as a small business owner, but I think there's ways to blend it. And I think, I think we're on the cusp. There are some changes that even happened post-COVID, right, with telemedicine and, and access to care that are they're starting to shift that paradigm again. Um, and as we see that um, Accountable Care Act sort of shifting again, part of what they're trying to also figure out is how do we make sure that we're taking care of people that may be chronically ill when the care can't be in facility. They're at home. They're, they're, they have multiple problems. So I think there's a way to do it, but I think it's going to take a bigger conversation. and It's going to take some people putting money up to force that change. It's right. venture capital and, and other groups need to start embracing not going for the easy dollar, which would be putting more money into medical device sales or, you know, other things where usually their money goes. So what do patients need to understand about the Accountable Care Act? That's something that's news to I me. Mean, everybody's heard about CARES Act, but mm-hmm. tell us about how it might benefit a patient. Right. So, um, you know, benefit the patient may be a, a, a sort of roundabout way. So the Accountable Care Act really was an attempt to create um, some requirements around outcomes, right? So up until the Accountable Care Act, there really wasn't anything in the, particularly the, let's say the governmental paid activities. So Medicare, TRICARE, Medicaid, that required a show of improvement in health, right? So if you went into the hospital and you had some procedure because there was an emergency procedure, Medicare paid for it, and whether you got any bit better was no was not really part of the process, right? And so people might be back later on that night because they had a complication and another complication and another complication. So the at the core of it, the Accountable Care Act was trying to set some parameters to the medical industry about how are you going to help these people really get better. And again, they were using punitive sort of things by, by basically penalizing people in the hospital system and the medical system if they didn't do that. And again, I think lacking the carrot for the person is, is a big problem with that system. So, so that's still evolving and growing, and I am hopeful about some of those changes. Um, the other side of the Accountable Care Act was the majority of people that are that are underinsured or uninsured in the United States are not really, really poor, right? People who are wealthy have insurance. People who are poor have the, the scapegoat Medicaid, which, again, is not a perfect system. But the vast majority of people that are having insurance problems and health care problems 
are the working middle class and the working poor, right? And um, Michael Moore's movie, Sicko, it was a classic example of that, right? So the people, the people that are struggling, and, and the biggest cause of uh, bankruptcy in the United States is medical. It's medical debt. So, and it, those are people that are working, and they can't work because they are sick, and they can't pay off their medical bills because they are the cost of their house and everything else that they have because the system is so expensive. So the other side of the Accountable Care Act was trying to create a safety net for the individuals that are the working, working class and the working class poor that aren't insured. And in some ways, it was, a, it was an insurance policy, but it's poorly ran and it's poorly managed. And, and again, it's punitive and financially doesn't really work. So we still need to restructure that. You know, but but that was really on those two sides. That was what the attempt was: was to really create that safety net for the working working people with no insurance, and then to try and provide some actual accountability for outcomes. Wow, I had no idea. I, I didn't really understand that either. Thank you for explaining that, and I'm pleased that you have hope for it. So it's continuing to evolve, I guess. What else is going on with it? Anything? You know, the latest was, so there's all these rules in medicine, um, and, and many of them there are necessary. One's called the Stark Law, and the other one's anti-kickback. And that was to make sure that you didn't have somebody in medicine, like, making recommendations and, and you know, where they got financial remuneration because they made a recommendation or where they were, you know, using a particular prescription, let's say, and getting a kickback from the company, because that was a problem years ago. So those two rules came in and really sort of put parameters around that. But they were so tightly regulated that they hampered other organizations that may not be hospitals and or physician-owned physician companies from being able to come in and augment what's happening. So I'll give an example. Let's say a patient goes in and has a surgery has complications from that surgery and maybe needs a medical device and or home care, right? The medical device company and the home care company are probably not going to be owned by physicians, but there was all these kind of legal loopholes that you had to jump through to try and bring those three groups together to make sure that the patient had somebody come to their house, check the wound, and bring them a wheelchair, right? So in the last year, post-COVID, some of those rules have been have been relaxed when you can show outcome-based re realities. So those things are an improvement, right? Now, if somebody is going to be a bad player, they'll find a way around it, but that's up to the legal world and other things. We need to worry about how do we help people get well and stay well. It is also time for people to get into looking more to advocate for themselves and not just, in essence, checking in and telling their doctor, it hurts here, fix it you know, more accountability and advocacy for themselves, I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of people would say, oh, wouldn't it be better if we had a healthcare system that paid for everything? So, and I, and I, I you know, I look at Europe and other places where they have nationalized healthcare, and in some ways that's really great because they are a little more proactive, but there's also things like waiting lists when you need really serious, you know, procedures. So, but, but there is a thing. I, I fully believe that when you look at it, there needs to be some um, accountability for the person. And when you when you know that in order for you to get healthy, you've got to change your diet, you're going to have to like work on your stress and change your lifestyle. If it's all free, you won't do that, right? People people take serious what they have to pay for generally, right? So I'm not against people paying for 
the right instruction, the right partner, the right activity, the right diagnostics, and all those other things for them to know what they need to do, because then they'll take it seriously. You know, because I think some of what made a, made this sort of a mess is when managed care came out, it made it much more expensive, and it made it put the, this system in place that is now broken. But it also took the ownership kind of away from the patient. It was like, all these people are going to tell you what you need to do. And that's how it rolls. So we have one or two generations. That's all they know. But, you know, back in, you know, the late 70s or in 60s and 70s, you had insurance you paid for, you had a deductible, and it was between you and your doctor as to how you spent those discretionary dollars, right? But now you have an insurance company with somebody in a cubicle telling your doctor whether they're allowed to run a test on you or not, right? And most of the time, they're not doctors either. It's a, it's a nurse. And there's, there's more that you, you and I have also spoken about with regarding managed care. Would you like to expand on that a little bit more? I know that we were going to have that as a subject in the future anyway, so a little bit of introduction to it <laughs> might not be a bad idea. Yeah, so managed care came about during the Nixon reign, right? And, and the intentions of it was, I mean, Nixon admitted clearly actually on tape since he taped every conversation he ever had that it was going to make a lot of money for a lot of people. And so managed care was, was touted as this way to manage this, these burgeoning sort of crazy medical costs by providing sort of a cookbook and sort of a um, flow chart of how things were supposed to go and that the insurance companies and would sort of direct how that care would go. So, so you would sort of know if you had this diagnosis, sort of what the next step was going to happen. And the idea being that this was going to control costs. Well, that's been a miserable failure. Right, because our costs are skyrocketed. We spend more in the United States than any other Western country with the poorest outcomes, even in things like like um, um, deaths during birth, like childbirth. I mean, we have the worst performing and the most expensive system. So managed care is a miserable failure. And it's because you basically have all these people in the pie as middlemen making decisions about how things go. You know, and then because of that, you have to employ so many people that are paper pushers in between to sort of handle it, that the cost of of ownership and activity goes up so radically that you have to raise the price of everything. That's why you see saline in a surgery is $100 when you could go to the local drugstore and buy it for a dollar. It's just it's the, the cost of just outpaced everything else because you have way too many middlemen sticking their fingers in it. Sheena, go ahead. I know. And one of the, one of the things that I think has happened is with COVID, uh, I'm always going to represent kind of the average guy in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. I think a lot of people's eyes were opened around the amount of nuttiness in our medical system. You know, and, and I, I understand it's still fresh and controversial. I'm not trying to hit on any side, but everybody got to see how the medical system is being run on a national stage. Like everybody, my kids now have this whole like, well, what's the doctor say? And there's like an attitude behind it, like around masks and stuff. They've picked up this, not about whether we should wear a mask or we shouldn't. It's just that it changed every day, you know, on national news to where my kids who are raised in a world where you do the same things every day. Now my kids are like, what is this? Doctors are supposed to be the people with the knowledge, and we don't know. That generation is going to grow up with a inherent distrust of this managed medical, you know, kind of thing. I, so it's neat to know 
there is this, I don't know if I should say movement, but there is this process coming up of a new way right at the time where generations are coming up where they are not going to tolerate this. I'm telling you, my kids are not going to be in their 30s putting up with this kind of stuff. They just, they'll just pay for it themselves and go to someone who knows how to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's already occurring. I have a, I consulted with a very large organization that has over 5,000 employees. And what's interesting is they have a huge employee base, like the average age of the company is 28. So that'll give you so they have basically in a gigantic group of 20-year-olds that work for them, and then they have some individuals who are older. They're self-funded, right? So self-funded insurance, co- companies that have self-funded insurance, what they need is a lot of people to participate because the, high, the older individuals are going to cost more. The younger individuals cost less. That helps defer the cost. And so they were frustrated because like a significant portion, like frighteningly large portion of their employee population were like, yeah, we're just not even going to do insurance because it was too expensive. I don't see any value in it. Why would I do it? I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to go to those doctors. I'm not going to do anything with it. So they were opting out of insurance, which was making all of the insurance rates for the few individuals really expensive, right? So your group, by the time they get there, the whole managed care thing is going to start to fall apart because they'll just opt out. Yeah, for sure. Well, even when, and again, none of this is political but when obamacare came out i've been self-employed for 20 years my wife's an accountant it became obvious really fast that it was cheaper to pay the tax penalty than it was to have this really pretty crappy insurance so there was a couple of years where we're like we're not going to pay that i'll just i'd rather just pay the irs a fee than deal with all this madness you know so there's all of these failed programs failed programs failed programs which leads me if you don't mind to a another question how do all these people that are opting out find out about you and what you do? Like, how do we close? I'm a marketer by trade. So how do you close the gap of awareness so that more of these people opt out right. of, well, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. I don't know if we want people to opt out of insurance. We just want people to come and see yeah. you and get We want them to opt in, <laughs> opt in to <laughs> proactively <laughs> acting on their health. Yeah. Ooh, yes. that's a good way. Yes. Don't opt out. There you go. You can, there you go. <laughs> There's <laughs> your marketing page. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> you well go? done. Well done. Um, you know, yeah. I think, um, I think yeah. a lot of it is awareness. Um, you know, so it's, 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 People like myself and the other individuals that are out there doing podcasts and trying to trying to just get the awareness out there. You know, oddly enough, there is there is some backlash even in our industry because again, there's a lot of financial interests that don't really want people to opt out of what's really going on. Um, so I think it's people going out and, and seeking, you know, seeking out functional medicine and going and looking and seeing does that resonate with me? Does that does that idea resonate with me? Um, the Institute for Functional Medicine has a search cap- capability, so you can look for those individuals in your neighborhood. You know, the good thing is with um, with telemedicine, the way it is today, and um, the kind of the adoption of virtual visits, which we've been doing for a long time. Um, now, within each state, if you're doing medical procedures, so if you're an MD, DO, naturopath, or th- those kind of things, you need to practice within your state because you have to be licensed because each state is licensed separately. That would be a huge change that would help. But... If somebody lives in the state of Texas and they're in Houston, but they want to see somebody in Dallas, they can establish care through a virtual visit with anybody in the state, right? So the good thing is, is even if you may live somewhere that may not have access to um, functional medicine in your neighborhood, you can get access because you can find somebody within your state, right? And many, many of my friends that might might be practicing are starting to license in multiple states because then they could work with multiple people, right? 
you know. So I think it's that. You know, your question about kind of the the what we're seeing in the media, um, and I'm not going to go. I'm not talking politics on any particular side, but it's the polarization of our politics and our lack of civility and ability to have just an open and honest conversation that's about the facts, not opinions, that has made this circus so hard for people to navigate, right? Because it has become a circus. Fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, there's, as we are talking, I'm thinking of Brenna, I'm thinking of all these people, Yes. you know, over the years, there's just so many people in your life, in my life that we have watched go through this circus and they don't really get any results. There are no new results. It's always the same thing with all these folks. Like, where are you at? Well, I feel better today. Well, what changed? I don't know. I have no idea, you know? And these are people that are advocating for themselves. I'm not talking about someone sitting at home. I'm, they're going through doctor after doctor. And I guess my question, how would someone like me even know what to search for? Yeah. So you're going to a doctor. I'll just throw out a bunch of things. Stomach issues, gout, arthritis, all this rant. It seems random. It's not. You go to all the doctors, all the individuals. They do all the tests. You check your uric levels. Da-da-da. None of them are talking. You get the drill. I'm at home frustrated with a gout flare-up. Why would I think of anything different? What would I search? Like, I'm not a lazy dude. I'll Google the hell out of anything. But I don't know what to Google. Right. Do I Google what to do when my doctors suck? Like, (laughs) it's a real issue for people to know how to even find... Right. So what would the search be? I know. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. I was going to ask the same question. What's the Google yeah. search for someone who doesn't know any of these terms that you've Right, defined? right. So, so yeah, it would be hard because it's almost like you're, you want to put together, uh, you know, gout and and right. joint pain and this and that and what and happens I've done here. all that. I've done that. Yeah. Like, why would gout? And you get this sentence this long and <laughs> Google's like, that. we don't even know what you're You reached for. the end of the internet. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a huge challenge. It, it's a huge, huge challenge because because it's not put together in a way like that. You know, like when, when I talk to people and they want to know, you know, how do I make sure I find somebody like you or your clinic? You know, what makes a really good clinician, I don't care if they're a doctor or a nutritionist or whatever, is they darn well better be curious, right? You can't do this line of healthcare if you're not curious. And I think your, your traditional medicine because it, and your conventional medicine because there's so much bureaucracy and all this other stuff that they beat that out of them and so they're so burned out that their curiosity is fried. And, um, and when somebody loses their curiosity, it's like losing their compassion. They need to go. And, and so to me, like, I'm probably the most curious person you'll ever meet. I love it when somebody comes in and they said, I've been to Mayo, I've been to Cleveland, and I've been to UT Southwestern and five other places. Here's my, here's my binder. What can you tell me? I'm like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, I, all I, in. I'm all in. I am yeah. all in because I, I am a, you know, I'm just like, I, I'm fascinated a by true people. challenge. She's yeah. true joking. Challenge. Yeah. 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 And, and, but, but you have to have curiosity. So like, if you're talking to your practitioner, even if they're hundred percent conventional, if they don't seem curious about what's going on with you, they probably aren't going to help you as a partner because your doctor and your healthcare people are a partner with you. They're not a dictator. Right. I told a bunch of doctors one time, and I was, we were talking about the experience in medicine and everything in the office and all of that, and I said, you need to remember this is a customer service industry, and they, of course, lost, one of them lost their mind on me. And I said, who pays your bills? It's your patient, right? So you need to be about that patient and what's going on, and their entire experience needs to be about them, right? And so if they're not curious, they're not the right one. 
So even if you find a functional medicine doctor, because the other thing I can say is when you start looking at these, you, it's, it's functional medicine is this gigantic umbrella of how to think about something. But we all have different things we're interested in. Like I work a lot with women's health, autoimmunity, and complex health problems, right? I'm probably not the best one if you're just a diabetic patient. There are other ones that are great out there. So you kind of look for that. Um, but so it's almost like going to Brahms and going, which ice cream cone do I get? You need to, I would set up an interview. And, and really, you know, let them know you're interviewing them to see if they fit what you want, you know? See, th- it's so funny. When's the last time you interviewed your doctor? Like, I don't think like that. To your point, I really don't. I mean, I'm a 45-year-old grown man, and I'll go and be like, just tell me what I'm supposed to take, you know? And then I get sick from what I'm taking, and then I get mad at them. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't interview my doctor. I, I know. I just came this week to actually be a patient with Betty for the first time. We had an hour and a half visit. Oh, wow. And that was after I filled out a pretty detailed survey. That's more than eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like the, the, the health intake, I actually print it out. I write all over it. I circle things because that's just a crib sheet for me to ask questions. Right. right? And that's true of every functional medicine person or, or functional nutritionist. That's just to get started because everything that's ever happened up to this point may be valuable, even what happened as a kid, right? Because all of that timeline and all those things add up to who you are today. And so in order for us to really feed that curiosity and maybe unwind what's really happening, it could have been something that happened 20 years ago or medication you were put on or whatever. We have to dig. And so you can't do that in eight minutes. You just can't. <laughs> I like that you have to even explain that. Just so you guys know. An hour and a half isn't can't the same as someone's eight entire life. And, and and I actually set aside two hours because I rarely get done in an hour and a half. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think part of the reason we got done in less than two hours is we've already been talking to each other for a period of time. And oh, I've okay. kind of already alluded to some concerns and issues. Sure. So, yeah. 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 So that was, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. I know that you do have another call, and I don't want to keep you any later than necessary, but mm-hmm. two things. Okay. If people need to get in touch with you, tell mm-hmm. them how to do it. Okay. And number two, is there anything that we didn't talk about that is related to the subject at hand here that you'd like to put into this message? Okay. So um, that we didn't talk about, I think we did a good job of explaining, especially what functional medicine is, what all those different names, integrative, this, that is. You did a good job. We listened. <laughs> Just to be clear. I know so. a little bit more now than I did <laughs> yeah. on my own yeah. Google. Yeah. Yeah, and so and so, I think I think we did a good job for your listeners. So now that they they can feel a little more, a little more aware of what they're looking at, and and a lot of times those terms get used inappropriately or intermixed in a way that's not they, appropriate. They do, and that was part of my confusion. I'm over here thinking, wait a minute, I don't get this. Yeah, because like we're integrative because we have all these different therapies under one roof, but the paradigm in which we work is a functional medicine base, right? Good, and good with example. precision. Right. Good. Very good example. And I think that even further clears, clarifies it in a nice summary. And that yeah. is God celebrating you in the background. For yeah. our <laughs> listeners, we have a thunderstorm going on. Yeah. So. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that. And so how to reach us, you can look us up at livingwelldallas.com, right? You can also reach us at 972-930-0260, or you can also email info at livingwelldallas.com. And would you run down the list of treatments or services that you offer? Right. So uh, how about I do it this way? Rather than talking specialties, I'll tell you the people, the predominant problems that we see. So individuals with autoimmune issues, chronic pain, chronic health conditions. So if you've got a lot of things going on and nobody's been able to sort of pair those things together, um, that's what we're really good at. 
Um, obviously, we work a lot with, I would say, women and women in that sort of 35 and up range because we have hormones that shift and change and cause a lot of health problems. So a lot of that hormonal imbalance. Um, definitely uh, psychological, mood, depression, anxiety, ADHD, both adults and children, right? You know, so we look at like why I put together the things I did under one roof. If I look at the groups that have the largest amount of chronical, uh, chronical, I just made up a word, (laughs) (laughs) chronic health conditions that are really poorly managed in Western care, autoimmune patients, you know, the 50 million that are probably diagnosed in the United States are really poorly managed. And then individuals dealing with mood issues, right? Because, and, and then we have a lot of things that get sort of monikered as that when they don't know what to do in their eight-minute visit. And so, and so that's why we have those things under one roof, because we, we really recognize that you can do a lot to help people when they feel depressed and anxious and all these other things when we can address the diet, the lifestyle, the biochemistry. And then autoimmune, obviously, there's so many things that are diet and lifestyle related, too. Wow. Okay, Damien, what was the last Well, question? what I was going to say is I want the listeners to understand this is not a paid commercial or sponsorship of any sort. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is such a great way to, to really talk about your business for yeah. someone like me that I just didn't understand. But what I noticed when I first came in, number one, the dog. Woody, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's Woody. Yeah, Woody, he's got his own business card. I love it. I saw that when I walked in. But what I, what I do want listeners to understand which is for me someone who's been on a journey pursuing a lot of different ways to get you know better this is going to sound mean but a lot of these type of places that i have visited i'm really uncomfortable in them like they it's there's another whole subject we can talk about at another time i'm used to going into a doctor's office with charts of doctor stuff but then you go into some of these other places, and it gets really weird. And a lot of my just regular, average Joe friends, they're never going into some of these places. Like, I'll just use – I love chiropractors. I have no problem with chiropractors. But a lot of chiropractor places, chiropractic places, add and add and add other things. And a friend of mine will have a car accident, go to a chiropractor, and then they come out with, like, vials of mold and, you know, the expansion. And mm-hmm. that creates a disconnect. We were talking about on the way over here, where really well-meaning people, they don't understand what all that is. It's too much of a contrast to go from a doctor that talks to you for eight minutes in a bright, lit room Mm -hmm. to a spa slash chiropractor slash, you know, get your this, get like a market almost Mm -hmm. at times. And when I walked in, because I'm kind of a jaded cat, as you know, when I walked in, I was like, this feels like. A doctor's office. Like, these people are actually going to treat me, not just try to sell me stuff, you know. And I wanted to state that in the beginning, but I was thinking, this is going to sound like an ad. It just felt so comfortable to walk in, and I didn't know any of the stuff that you did. I was just like, well, this is actually like a doctor's office. Patty, good job. (laughs) I I feel comfortable here. And then to learn everything else, it's just awesome. Um, And I'll be talking with you Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so Woody is a therapy dog, right? So we have a therapy dog in office, obviously, especially with psychiatry and psychology. Oh, my. Right? You know, I we have children. Just we see really children, here because you like dogs. Well, we do, too. I mean, he's, yeah, he's here awesome. for that. Awesome. But, but, a therapy but dog. he's here for our patients, right? So, you know, and I think we do a good job. We did a lot of thoughtful consideration about the paint colors, the look. So we, I mean, we're a gallery, so we have 63 uh, original pieces. We're actually in the middle of switching some out I because I believe art is therapeutic. Oh, my gosh. And I love you. <laughs> 
And, and that was but, just recorded too. Yes, I'll yeah. edit that. But, I, but, at, but at the end of the day, we have the clinical things, but we, we tried to do a really good job of, yes, you see our diplomas on the wall and all that stuff, but we also want it to be comfortable because I believe those really sterile white environments with the white coat and all of that gives this hierarchy experience of, I'm going to tell you how to fix mm-hmm. you. It's authoritarian. It's authoritarian, sure. and, and so we don't do that. Like, we, we have white coats, we don't wear them. Because we surveyed our patients, and they were like, we don't really love white coats. Yeah. It has this Why feel. Yeah, and I was like, well, they're really uncomfortable. They're stiff and kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Good. Right. <laughs> Most patients don't. That's why they call it the white coat syndrome. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it, it really is a thing. There is so much. I made note after note after note of things that I know that we could come back and talk about. But this has been incredibly informative. Uh, thank you so much. You're absolutely brilliant. And uh, uh, let's plug your... URL again. So it's livingwelldallas.com. That's a wrap. All right. Thank you, everybody. And uh, make sure you go to www.channelsofhealth.com to check out the rest of our podcast. And we'll see you in the next one. All right. Betty, thank you. Thank you for listening to Channels of Health. We're so glad you've joined us today. To find out more about our mission and to connect with Channels of Health, go to www.channelsofhealth.com. And you can email us directly at info at channelsofhealth.com. We look forward to our next episode with you. Until then, be well.